Take your Bibles and turn to the back, to the book of Jude. One of my absolute favorite books of the Bible. Um, I love it, but according to my notes, last time I preached from this was a decade ago, and it was from the whole book in one sermon, which sounds like some crazy thing I would do. Uh, We're not going to do that today, though. We're starting verse 17, a bit more manageable. We'll be back in Isaiah next week, don't worry. All right, Jude 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray briefly. Lord, your word is perfect. We readily admit that we are not. Would your spirit be pleased to bridge that gap, that we might hear from heaven, understand, and even believe. Would you give us faith today? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, I'm returning from two months of writing leave where I worked on my dissertation the whole time. And and when I say worked on my dissertation the whole time, I I really mean the whole time. Uh, A normal day was get up, eat breakfast, and write until I couldn't do anything else and then go lay down and sleep for a little bit and then get up and write some more. And hopefully, if I could get a second set of writing in before It was too late at night. That was the day. That's pretty much it. I periodically drove back here to teach class or to have session meeting and see the family and things like that. But uh, that's pretty much the whole time, eight weeks of that. Uh, And it's amazing what runs through your head when you're basically locked by yourself with one book of the Bible for two months. Uh, And what you get a chance to think about and kind of process and thinking about this church and being away from it and worshiping at other PCA churches and uh, realizing, obviously, how much I missed home, missed being with my family, missed being with you guys, missed singing with y'all. I uh, went to one church where I ended up singing a solo, which was not, not really a good thing uh, for them or for me, really, if you're uh, honest about it. <clears throat> but 
having visited a number of different PCA churches, kind of realizing it is important that we regularly remind ourselves at Christ Ridge what kind of church we want to be. Uh, it's easy to forget, really. It's easy to get distracted, really, and, and honestly, um, we're the kind of church or have historically in the past been the kind of church that wants to do the hard things and do them well. Now, it doesn't mean we're always successful. It certainly doesn't mean that we're perfect in any way. I mean, that's why we have confession of sin every Sunday. Uh, session prays that just as much as everybody else, uh, probably more, honestly. We, we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it is to admit that, you know, kind of, again, being different places and thinking different things and having different experiences, to, it's important that we remind ourselves kind of what we're about, remind ourselves what the biggies are. And if you go to stop to think about that for me, there's a number of different places we could talk about that and talk about the Great Commission, but I've talked about that this calendar year. Jude is one I don't remember talking about, though I probably have at some point. One of my favorite books of the Bible, but largely because of, I think, how well it fits pastoral ministry in the United States during my lifetime. It's written by an older man. He's had plenty of time to kind of observe the world. And it begins with, I think, one of my favorite kind of introductions to any book of the Bible. Verse 3 says, I wanted to write you a happy letter, but the bozos got in the way. Now, that's my translation. Don't, don't take that as gospel truth. But that's functionally it. I wanted to write you a letter to encourage you in our common salvation. I wanted to build you up and edify you. The problem is the world that we currently live in is one in which maybe it's not quite as important to have the encouragement as it is to have the reminder. And so he writes a letter reminding them. That's where you get to see in verse 5. I want to remind you. I want to remind you, I want to remind you, I want to to draw you back to the important things, to the things that you have known. And you'd ask the question, well, okay, what is so bad that the great Jude would be like, ah, yeah, I wanted to write you a happy letter, but Bozo's got in the way. What would be so bad that he would have to kind of change what he's going to write? And I love that really, if you kind of spend time in the first set of the book, verses really 4 through 16, which we're not going to spend a lot of time in, he's confronting a generation that has fallen in love with their senses, meaning uh, they've begun to build the entirety of their lives around their senses, sensuality, their, their, what they feel and what they taste and what they smell, what they hear. And put differently, it's really a generation that's uh, built around, a culture that's built around their pleasures. Boy, if that doesn't kind of ring true for today, isn't it? Uh, For you younger ones in the room, you've not yet lived long enough for this to kind of click in your head that like, this is America today. This is one of the the benefits of having a church like this where we try to have younger folks hanging out with older folks constantly is so that the older folks in the room can say, well, when I was a kid, 
And the younger people can roll their eyes, but still learn. You know, it wasn't like this. Right? We've had folks in the room that are old enough to remember a very different America, very different culture, very different life, uh, a culture that did not value its pleasures quite so aggressively as it does now. That's what Judah's looking at. Now, interestingly, was that culture any worse than it is today? I, 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 I don't know. It might be. It might be worse. might not be. I mean, I'm not sure. But he does begin to address that. We have a culture in which people have elevated their senses to the highest of goods. Their feelings have begun to rule the day. Well, let's call them what they are, feelings. And then, oh, no, that really does sound like today, doesn't it? My feelings are the most important thing. You can't tell me what I'm supposed to feel or what I'm supposed to believe. But even more specifically and more problematically for them is that those people have not just stayed out there. They weren't just the people that they were trying to reach with the good news. It wasn't just, hey, look, you've made a God of your sexuality. Come meet the living and true God that will free you from that burden. Or you've made a God of your ego. Come meet the real God who will free you from that burden. Or you've made a God of your parenting. Come meet the God that will free you from that burden. What's happened here in this setting is that these people have made it into the church. And you have a church that's now wrestling with this love of pleasure, not just from the outside, but from the inside. And they're having a hard time. They're creeping up from the inside is the language that Jude uses. And it's been a source of immense pain. I love that. It's a good pastoral letter, right? A pastor who's looking at a church where uh, their culture is unraveling. Uh, They've probably had some fairly significant church discipline in their midst, and they've obviously had great heartache, and some people ruin their lives. And at the end of this book, really 17 through uh, 23, you have the old pastor explaining how a church is supposed to operate in a culture that is unraveling. Oh, that, that sounds very helpful today, doesn't it? Sounds like the kind of thing that we ought to pay attention to and really sounds like the kind of church that we ought to be. All right, so what can we learn? Christ Ridge year of our Lord, 2023, almost 2024. Get ready to mess your checks up on your ties every month. What do we learn? Well, you must remember. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. You, you got to remember I love that. The old pastor reminding, you have to remember, none of this is a surprise to God. In fact, actually, it's so not a surprise to him that he sent people to tell you about it in advance. He sent prophets to warn you in advance. He sent disciples and apostles to warn you in advance. He sent the authors of Scripture to warn you in advance so that none of you would be surprised. 
Now, I understand that, no, not the old man in the room yet, one of the churches I did attend, I think I was the fifth oldest person in the room. That was a weird feeling. 150 people in the room looking around like, wow, wow, I stick out. But I understand the temptation uh, that the older ones in the room might have to look at the world around us and to grow increasingly hopeless. To think that the America of my childhood is gone. I I can't give that to my grandchildren because it's dead. To, To look at the political scene, to look at the economic scene, to look at the social scene, the cultural scene, the whatever, whatever it is that breaks your heart, to look at it and to say, well, it's, it's just too late. I should just give up. I'm just too sad. Now, there's a temptation, and we see this kind of happening all of the time. If you watch conservative news outlets, if you watch liberal news outlets, If you watch the in-between news outlets, I don't actually think they exist, but I'll I'll leave that category out there anyways. Or if you don't watch the news outlets at all, but just listen to any human that's talked in the supermarket over the last maybe couple of years, we hear this kind of constant ringing of hopelessness in our culture, right? Don't we? It's, It's everywhere. Like, I, I have no hope for the future, so I have to get mine now. Our our national ethics have changed, right? When I was a kid, I remember being taught in Charlotte-Mecklenburg Public Schools, I remember being taught that as long as you don't hurt somebody else, it's okay. As long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. And it's interesting that in the, the brief 40 years from that time, we now have a culture that no longer says as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, but a culture that's saying, you better hurt somebody else if it gets you yours now. Don't let them take that from you. You get yours. And it's easy for us to be overwhelmed by that, to be saddened by that, to be broken by that, to be grieved by that, and to grow hopeless. In fact, actually, it's easy for that hopelessness in political things to then kind of infiltrate the church. And particularly when you have sad things happen. We've had our fair share of sad things in 2023. Did more funerals in 2023 than I did the previous five years combined. That's a sad thing, isn't it? Had more job transfers out 2023 than we had, I think, the previous five years combined. That's a sad thing. Lost a beloved associate pastor, one of my bestest friends in the whole wide world. Not sad for him as he's doing what God's called him to do, but very sad for me. It'd be easy for us to kind of look at, or even worse yet, you forget these, maybe, because it was a long time in the beginning, disciplinary cases. So, so deeply hurtful. And it'd be so easy for us to say, well, it's just so bad, I'm just going to throw my hands up. I just... And I love the starting point the old pastor takes. You've got to remember... God's been talking about this long before you've been alive. He knew these experiences were going to happen, which is why he's warned us about those categories from the very beginning. I mean, if we look through the New Testament alone, it gives us the categories for death. It gives us the categories for grief. 
the categories for sorrow and loss. It gives us the categories for betrayal. It gives us the categories for hurt. It gives us the categories for people that we love letting us down. It gives us the categories for people that we love making mistakes. None of these are a surprise to God. You've got to remember, the Lord knows. <clears throat> the interesting thing, though, is that the, the great old pastor, and this is where maybe he might challenge again some of the kind of stereotypes of older folks, uh, you don't just remember and then stop. Right? That, that's the temptation is to say, oh, well, the good old days the good old days, and then get back stuck in it, and, and, and then never make it past it. You know, we've all had that friend, right? They, they were the, um, probably not actually the star in high school, but they remember themselves as being the athletic star in high school, and even when they graduate, they never make it past that. And I was like, brother, you're 32. You've got to let it go, man. You're approaching the point where you've been out of high school longer than you were in it. You've got to let it go. You've got to move on. There's an element in which I, I love how the pastor then does this, Jude does this, where he says, like, oh, you, you remember, God knew what he was doing. None of this is a surprise to him. He had this planned out before the foundation of the world. It was in his mind all along, which is why he told you so much of it was going to happen. Now, not the specifics and the details, but he warned you. Now, in light of that, this is how you act. Go do this. And there's really kind of three main verbs that follow with a whole bunch of subordinate stuff pinned underneath it. Verses 20 and 21 are the, really the same thing. Shouldn't be broken, but that's fine. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy. The, the, the verb there that you want to, you, you keep That's the one that's kind of designed in the original to catch your ear so that you hear our action set in light of a culture that's deteriorating, in light of uh, uh, the the struggles of hurt and heartache that we have uh, inside and outside of the church. In light of all of those things, your mission, people of God, is to keep yourself in the love of God. That's your job. Number one, you keep yourself in the love of God. That's what you have to do. You you be busy about it. Now, that means we don't just sit and grumble and complain. Oh, back in the good old days, it was so much better. Probably was. That's fine. Doesn't mean that we grow hopeless and just throw our hands up. Doesn't mean that we get angry. It means that we spend our energies staying in the love of God. Now, what does that mean? To stay in the love of God, to to keep yourselves in the love of God. I I love the, the mental image. If you've grown up with a cat, I did. I grew up with the coolest cat ever. Thing was 16 pounds. It hunted dogs for fun. It was the best cat ever. Awesome cat. Huge. But you could see when it was not actively killing things, much bigger than itself, it would go lay in the most spectacularly lazy fashion 
in the one bit of sunshine that we would have in the house, right? And as the sun moved through the sky and set, that little bit of sunshine would move. And so would the cat. Wouldn't move for anything else, right? You call it, is it moving? Nope. You want to go play with it? Is it moving? Nope. Not doing jack squat, but as soon as the sun shifts just a little bit on the floor, the cat just burp, 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 and just stayed in the warmth as it traversed across the floor. Maybe not a good illustration for you dog people, but whatever. It's a good one. It's a good illustration. Our mission is to, in so much as we are able, labor to spend our energy to stay in that divine sunlight, absorbing the warmth of heaven, the light of God. Now, there are specifics that the good pastor gives. How exactly do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Well, there's a couple of different ways. One is you, you build up yourselves in your faith. You build it up. Now, th- this is a thing that I think many of us tend to forget, that faith is not a passive thing. We, we tend to think, just kind of by default, incorrectly, that you either believe or you don't believe. And that, that's actually not true. Um, I mean, it, it is in the sense of the Spirit gives you life or not. But belief is a, a thing that is either cultivated or not. It's a thing that is nourished or strangled. And in fact, actually a thing that the Scriptures speak of regularly is a thing that has to be kind of built up, strengthened, fed, nourished, and grown in the Christian. That we, we actively labor to build up our faith. Now, how do you, you build up your faith? Well, you can avoid sin. Our Westminster Confession makes it very clear that you get stuck in sin. That can undercut your faith. You can inform it, learn more, right? The, a lot of times the things that we struggle with, this is a thing that took me a long time as a pastor to learn. A lot of times the things that people struggle with, the reason why they struggle with them is because they don't understand them. They really don't. They just don't understand them. And if you can actually sit down with the Bible and help bring clarity, a lot of times it becomes very clear and much easier and weirdly enough, strengthens faith. All right, you can inform it. You can practice it, put it into practice. You can talk about it and teach it. This is one of those things that, again, you hear it, but people don't believe it until they do it. You, you want to grow spiritually, particularly if you, think you're, if you think you're one of the, like, babier Christians in the room. One of the best things you can do is go teach kids Sunday school. And this is not just me doing a shameless plug to teach kids Sunday school. I could do that a different way if I really wanted to. I, I actually mean it in the sense of it, it is so good for your soul to have to figure out how to explain the Bible in a way that means something to a young mind. Suddenly, your, your brain becomes part of the, the shaping process for how the word is transmitted. And weirdly enough, as you do that, it warms your heart. Reading the Bible, spending time in it, and it changes 
a person. All right. So we're told, number verb number one, keep ourselves in the love of God, but we have uh, abundant subclauses here, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and also praying in the Holy Spirit. Uh, it always amuses me when you get a chance to talk with somebody and it's like, well, how, how are you doing spiritually? They're like, Pastor, I'm just struggling. I'm just struggling. I'm having a hard time in my faith. I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just struggling. Well, have you prayed about that? No. All right. Makes sense. I believe you're struggling, friend. I firmly, fully, totally believe you. Now, oftentimes we forget that in, in so many ways prayer is the fuel for growth. And it's the gasoline in the car. It's the turkey on Christmas Day. It's the the thing that drives it all, that makes the whole thing go. And I am amazed at how often and how easy it is for us to kind of take Christianity, and I think Presbyterians are bad at this, to make it so much in our heads that it never comes out of our mouths in prayer. Uh, And really, largely because I think sometimes we think of prayer as the primary task of prayer is to change the world around us. And so when somebody gets sick, almost dies, people pray, and the Lord answers, and that's wonderful and it's good. But we forget that the the primary purpose of prayer is, is not to heal the sick, it's to change the sick. It's to change the person that prays, right? When we go before the Lord in these written prayers that we have and things like that, it, it's, it's not simply designed to change the world, right? This confession of sin that we prayed is why some of us struggle with it. Like, I, I don't understand what the purpose of the confession of sin is. Friend, it's to change you. As you submit yourself before the Lord and, and open your heart to acknowledge your limitations and to ask God to change you and free, it changes you. It alters you. And then the third one, subordinate clause. Waiting for the mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. Looking for the life to come. Not just living in this moment. Right? This is a thing that our culture is increasingly talking about. You have to live in the moment. Right? Embrace the moment. Ugh. What a mess. No, in fact, actually, as Christians, you do live in the moment, and you, you do acknowledge the time and place that you live that God's called you to, but you live in this moment in light of all of those moments to come, waiting, longing for the life to come. I do think this is also, I would say, particularly for those of you that struggle with hopelessness or discouragement with whatever news station you live and listen to, to be reminded that all of the problems that your news station is addressing, they will not go with you into the life to come. And in fact, none of them will even pass into the life to come. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? That like all of like, even the matters, we're getting ready to go to what I think is probably gonna be one of the most unpleasant presidential elections in my entire life so far. I think next year is gonna be just dreadful in American culture. 
But you know what? The wild thing to think about that is the American presidency will not continue into the life to come. Now, presidents might individually make it into heaven, but the presidency's not going. <laughs> that's wild to think about, isn't it? That a thing that's getting ready to occupy so much of our time and our energy and our emotions and our lives, our pocketbooks and things like that, isn't even going to go with us into heaven, into the new life. We live in light of those things, though. We should. So that it teaches us how to think about grief differently, how to think about joy differently, how to think about loss differently, how to think about betrayal differently. And all of the days that I'm living, I'm longing for the mercy of God to appear in Jesus Christ. That's our mission as a church, really. I mean, if you're going to kind of, I normally talk about in the gathering and perfecting the saints by word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. Those are the easy ways to teach you good theology. But if we wanted to put that in biblical language, our mission as a church is to keep ourselves in the love of God. And we're going to keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up in our faith by praying in the Holy Spirit and waiting for Jesus. That's our mission as a church. That's, uh, interestingly, what does what 2024 hold for us? I, I don't know. I mean, you're going to hear Tom talk about the budget in a couple of weeks. And humanly speaking, almost certainly we're going to pay off our debt this year. That'll be great. Well ahead of schedule. What a sweet mercy of God. But you know what? All of it's really going to be secondary. Keep ourselves in love of God. Debt, no debt. People in the pews, no people in the pews. One pastor, two pastor, no pastor for two months. Keep ourselves in the love of God. Now, what that then does when we keep ourselves in the love of God is then equip us to do something with it. It actually makes us useful in the kingdom of God. Now, I I will be honest, I I can't speak for ladies in this regard. I'm not one, never have been. Uh, But men in the room, one of the things that tend to be most important to men is a feeling of usefulness. You want to be useful in this church. Keep yourself in the love of God first. You keep yourself in the love of God and grow, and then we'll figure out how to employ you in these next two verses, the next two verbs that then show up. Right? Verse 22 and then 23 both have dominant verbs with, again, subordinate clauses. Have mercy on those who doubt. I love this. This is, it reads again like a grandpa who's writing, not quite as much so as John when he's writing his stuff, but Jude, again, been around the church for a while. And you hear this just sweet tenderness as he deals with the people of God. You have mercy on those who doubt. Now, this is, I think, speaks to an attitude of treating people. Meaning, when you engage the weak, what is your demeanor supposed to be? Is it you come in guns blazing? Is it you come in and try to punch them in the mouth as hard as you can? 
In fact, actually, the weaker they are, the more they need a punching, right? Right? The weaker they are, the harsher I should be. No, in fact, actually, this is my philosophy of ministry right here. The more they doubt, the more mercy they get. The more tender they are. Now, you might have to be quick about it. You might have to move aggressively. You might have to have a a sense of purpose and urgency. But the greater the sense of care. And I I think of this in many ways as kind of the language of a surgeon. You have mercy on those who doubt. You, You have mercy on those who are sick. If a person comes in and says, hey, doctor, I've got a tiny little headache. Not sure why I'm using your time for this and paying my copay, but whatever. I've got a tiny little headache. What's the doctor going to do? Friend, go take an ibuprofen or you know, Tylenol or aspirin or something. Go away. You'll be okay, friend. They come in and they're like, hey, uh, doctor, I uh, was in a terrible car accident and I've severed my arm. Here's my arm. Can you attach it again? That doctor's going to probably be a bit more urgent, uh, a bit more focused, but in order to preserve that person's life, they're going to be very, very careful, are they not? Right? They're going to be extremely thoughtful and careful about figuring out what needs to be reattached where, how to get the blood flow to re-go, how to, to get the skin reattached, how to get the muscles and the ligament. Such tender carefulness. You know, when I spent my time in the hospital, it was one of the things I, I watched. I watched a lot of medical stuff, which was really weird that that's what I would watch while I was in the hospital, but I did. And it's amazing to see kind of the precision that so many doctors use when they care for people. And the surgery and how they can take the scalpel. This, it's not the scalpel that amazes me. It's when they cauterize it, right? Where they use heat or laser, where they actively burn the inside of your body in order to keep it from bleeding, unbelievable technique to take something so hot that it scorches your body into scarring so it can't burn, but to do it on the inside but without damaging the body. Amazing. And to think that, friends, this is our mission for how we are to treat each other. And honestly, there's a sense in which the weaker the sheep is in here, the more careful we ought to be in being kind, right? We really should be very delicate and tender and careful and kind and watchful for those that are weak and wounded. The more they hurt, the more careful we are with how we treat them. Now, that doesn't mean that you then just kind of roll over and go belly up and be, you know, um, a doormat that stands for nothing and does nothing. And you could misinterpret this passage to do that, which is why you get the second verb in verse 23, uh, which is, again, that have mercy, uh, but done a slightly different way. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, this does not mean that as we treat the weak and wounded and we treat them carefully and kindly, it doesn't mean that we don't stand for anything. And it doesn't mean that we don't talk to people about their sin or their struggles, and it doesn't mean that we don't uh, address difficult things. It, it really, I love how verse 22 in some ways frames out our attitude 
And then verse 23 kind of frames out the guardrails so that you don't get too soft and turn into just, you know, a soggy cracker. Uh, Verse 23 then frames it out that, look, our mission is, even as we handle folks, is to figure out how to snatch them out of the fire. Really interesting to think about, isn't it? I mean, how many, how many little boys or little girls when they were young and asked what they wanted to be when they grew up and they're like, I want to be a fireman. There's an element of like, yeah, that's literally what we're all called to be. A fireman or a firewoman. That's constantly straying into the very fires of hell to grab people and drag them kicking and screaming away from the edge. That's where they want to play. That's where they want to live. And we know eventually they will fall in. And our job is, in so much as we're able, is to grab them and and drag them, sometimes even kicking and screaming, into the church. Where they'll know the Lord and love him. And I think, I mean, the real term for this we know is evangelism. But that has all sorts of baggage. I don't evangelize and I'll do that. But friends, your job is to be a firefighter, to go into burning buildings and pull people back into safety. That's our job. That's what we're called to do. And the unfortunate reality is that Fort Mill is like ripe to do that. I mean, I've been here, it'll be 16 years in two months. Since I've been here, Fort Mill has, I think, tripled in size since I've been here, I think. And don't quote me on that exact stat, but roughly. Population is functionally, I think, tripled. I think the number of churches has decreased. If it hasn't decreased, it's not grown by much. That's an amazing thing to think about. And if you think about it, again, in the last 15 years in Fort Mill, how many churches have actively built buildings? I think it's six. I might be missing one. That's crazy to think about, that a town would triple in size and churches aren't building buildings. They're not growing, in fact, actively. I think over the 16 years I've been here, I think within maybe a six, eight-mile radius of where we're sitting, I think we've had eight different conservative churches die. Friends, our job in this place is to be firefighters that are actively trying to drag this town away from the fires of hell. That's a thing you can do if you're six years old or 96 years old. I love that job description. Drag them away from the fires of hell. Or in other cases, I guess maybe more in the South, people who say they're Christians but instead just want to tinker with sin We're actively pulling them away from sin. Now, again, this would be easy for us to go, throw up our hands, say, how is this possible? How, How on earth do you expect me to do that? I can't even keep myself in the love of God. Not very well. My prayer life is terrible, okay? I can't even do that. How on earth, if I can't take care of myself, how am I supposed to be able to take care of other people? Weak and wounded in here or dragging people back from the edge? Out there, how am I supposed to do that? 
Well, I, I love this is where Jude's ending is so sweet to me. This is a benediction I use all of the time. You probably have at least it subconsciously memorized if you've been a member of the church here for quite a while. Now to him, now how does he define the Lord? Who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless? Now, that him is not you or me. <laughs> I am not powerful enough to keep you from stumbling or to present you as blameless. You're not powerful enough to do that to me. Instead, all glory to the Lord. He is the one who saves. But that's where it ends. How is it that we will, God willing, in 2024, as a church, actively try to keep ourselves in the love of God? How is it that we as a church will actively try to show mercy on those who doubt? How is it that we as a church will actively try to snatch some out of the fire? How will we be successful at any of it? It will not be in ourselves. It will be done by Him, by God, the one who is able to keep you from stumbling, the one who is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory. Oh yeah, by the way, with great joy. Delight in the process to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. How is it possible? Well, God will do it. Very quickly, I'll just end with this. And this sermon's designed in many ways to be a reminder. But even as we've grown, for some of us, it's not a reminder, it's a, a first hearing, but We as a church need to be desperately focused on that which is most important. And honestly, as we grow in size and grow in different kinds of people from different places, it's easy for us to adopt good but lesser visions. It's easy to be distracted from the best by things that are good. Said differently, when good becomes the enemy of great Friends, our task is 2024 as we go into officer nominations and we, Lord willing, find a, another pastor and as we, Lord willing, pay off our debt and Lord willing, start figuring out what we'll build next, if we will, or whatever else. Our job is to gather and perfect the saints by word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. Said differently here, to keep ourselves in the love of God. please, Do not grow weary in that task. And I would say kind of secondarily, if you have already, would you please talk to your shepherding elders so we can figure out how to take care of you? We don't want you to grow weary and stop keeping in the love of God. That's how all the other bad stuff in the book happens, and we don't want that. So that together we as a church will be refocused and useful and beneficial in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, might you use us for your glory. Might you keep us in your love. Might you teach us to show mercy. Might you make us skillful at snatching folks from the fire. Bless us in your service, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.